Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. As August draws to a close, the gardens here at Wisley in Surrey are looking wonderful and very lush thanks to alternating rain and sun. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the team of garden advisors based here in the historic laboratory building. I also enjoy venturing out of the lab for a good look round the garden over lunch breaks and I can report that in the past week our fabulous gardening teams have just finished a brand new feature, our exotic garden. It's brimming with bold foliage and hot hues. It already looks really well established and it's doing a really great job of bringing late summer vibrancies to the rather lacklustre weather that we've had recently. So if you're visiting, make a beeline for it. If you've listened before, you'll already know that these podcasts are made by people who love plants, for people who love plants, and who'd like to know more. Coming up in today's podcast, our expert team gives practical solutions to your gardening problems, the latest updates on garden events and activities across the UK, and botanist James Armitage continues his exploration of the more weird and wonderful specimens in Wisley's plant collections. But first, let's go into the garden. Not any garden, but RHS Garden Hyde Hall in Essex. Located on one of the county's high points, the garden boasts breathtaking views and a sense of peace and spaciousness. It has undergone a major redesign and investment programme recently. New developments include an innovative winter garden, the surprising and inspiring global growth vegetable garden, more of which in our next podcast, and new public areas. The results are spectacular and are already proving incredibly popular with visitors of all ages. The podcast team visited on a blisteringly sunny day to meet the gardeners and to find out more. My name's Andrew Hellman. I'm garden manager here at Hyde Hall and we're currently in the Winter Garden, which has just opened within the past uh, month. So the Winter Garden is right near our visitor entrance, which is also near the children's play area. So in the summer, especially during summer holidays, you can hear a bit of the, uh, the laughter of children in the background. What's really unique about Hyde Hall is it's a relatively new garden. It was a working farm, actually some parts of it still are a working farm, uh, but the Robinson family, uh, Dick and Helen Robinson, moved here in the 1950s and they began gardening as well as farming, uh, but slowly began converting it more and more to garden. Uh, but actually the RHS then took over Hyde Hall in 1993, meaning we're coming up to our 25th year as an RHS garden. And we've had a huge number of developments in that time. And so in the past almost 25 years, the garden has had a lot of, a lot of developments. We've expanded the amount of garden significantly, uh, but the estate is still 365 acres, so that's a lot of space to try to garden. So we, that's where we have areas like our woodland on the wider estate. We have lots of areas of grassland, but then we also have a, a mixture of formal gardens, more informal gardens, and larger scale prairie type plantings uh, throughout. My name's Tom Freeman. I'm one of the team leaders here at Hyde Hall. I look after the uh, cottage garden, the winter garden, all of the entrance, perennial meadows. So at the moment we're standing uh, just off to the side of the perennial meadow at Hyde Hall, uh, which is just on your left as you drive in. 
just currently sheltering from the wind a little bit actually because it's quite breezy out here this perennial meadow actually goes around the hillside right on top of the hill and all the way around 360 you've got a, a really good view of all the rolling countryside hills uh, and a view right down to the reservoir as well. The perennial meadow came about because we were looking for ways of developing um, the surrounding countryside around the main part of the garden so the existing grasslands stretching out we've got 360 acres here so we were looking at ways of getting people out from the centre of the garden and exploring the wider estate. We've done a lot of trials here, beds on wildflowers and perennials that actually do well here in, in this climate uh, and based on that we have uh, lots of seed mixes which were sort of developed by us and Professor James Hitchmo. Uh, he works at University of Sheffield um, so he's helped us develop these seed mixes and yeah, it's, uh, the, this is the phase one of the perennial meadow and it covers about 1.7 acres, so it's about 7,000 square metres. So it's a huge area, it's a sort of a circular area which goes around this huge, huge oak which is on top of the hill. It sweeps right the way around um, and it's visible from the road as you drive in. Uh, and it's split into four distinct areas and big sort of sweeping areas within that. So you've got the North American prairie mix. There is a North American and South African mix because they're kind of the similar plants, similar climate. Um, there is a Eurasian steppe mix as well. And going right the way through that as well, in the middle, there's a grass dominated mix. So it's mainly ornamental grasses with the occasional flowering perennial. In the uh, Eurasian section, the sort of plants that you might see um, are plants that you're going to recognise in your garden, your own garden, uh, and plant centres as well. Uh, things like uh, asters, echinops, which are your globe thistles, uh, perovskias, which is your Russian sages, and just your, your normal sages, your salvias as well, uh, plus things like scabious, oregano, thyme, that sort of thing, all mixed in together. So this time of year uh, we get a lot of yellow colours come through actually, predominantly from the North American section. Uh, so things you're going to see here are things like Rebecca's, uh, your Helianthus which are your perennial sunflowers, the Echinaceas as well, things like Coreopsis which is very similar uh, looking flower to a Rebecca or a, or a sunflower. We want people to explore the wider estate uh, and having something like this out here uh, certainly does that. It's a great resource for wildlife as well. We've got the beehives which are just next door as well. So that's a great, great resource for them to, uh, you know, to use as well. Plus we get, every time I come out, come out here, we've got all sorts of wildlife out here. Bees, butterflies, all the kestrels hunt out here as well. Plus I, I'm always disturbing hares as well. We have heavy clay here, which is, which is a challenge definitely for, for the plants that we're trying to grow here. Um, so the method we used uh, is a method devised by James Hitchmo and he recommends that we, we sow into four inches of uh, sand, so a coarse sand. Uh, so the preparation for this was we, we sort of cleared the whole site and had it all sprayed and it was completely covered in four inches of sand over the whole site. So you can imagine how much sand that, that is. I think it was around 9,000 tonnes. And then this all had to be then levelled and then in January 2015 uh, James Hitchmo came himself and, and helped us sow the seed directly by hand over the whole site. The bit after that is that we have to cover the entire site in uh, what we call a jute matting. It's uh, like a, uh, a wide grade hessian matting uh, which goes all the way over the whole site. 
which just acts as a, a really good environment for a seed to germinate. It stops the seed blowing away uh, and also it stabilises the sand because we are planting on a hill here. It's a good way for anyone at home to, to create a meadow. Uh, there's many different ways of creating a meadow. This is the method that we chose because it works on a large area, but there's no reason why anyone in their own garden can't, can't use the same method. Some of the garden team at Hyde Hall in Essex. In our next RHS Gardening podcast in a fortnight, we'll explore the global growth vegetable garden and find out how they are taking growing your own to a new international level, cultivating vegetables from around the world, including chickpeas, shark fin melons, quinoa, and even electric daisies on a hilltop in Essex. Details of the garden, events and entrance times can be found on the RHS website. So, what events and activities are happening at Hyde Hall and in the other three RHS gardens in the coming weeks? September can be a wonderfully colourful month in the garden. Why not come and celebrate it with us at the Autumn Plant Festival at Harlow Carr in Yorkshire on the 2nd and 3rd of September? There'll be specialist nurseries, seasonal advice and even a tender plant show. If you're feeling crafty, join us at Hyde Hall for the Contemporary Craft and Design Show from the 25th to the 28th of August. More than 140 exhibitors will showcase a range of high-quality crafts, including jewellery, glass, sculpture and more. Meanwhile, down at Wisley, the Surrey Sculpture Society Trail is open now and runs until the 24th of September. Contemporary or traditional, you'll find your favourite from around 80 inspirational sculptures by some of the southeast's finest established and emerging artists. And finally, at Rosemore in Devon, just like our other gardens, there's a plethora of activities for children during the summer holidays, including famous five-themed garden adventures and drop-in workshops. You can find full details of all these events and many more on our website go to rhs.org.uk forward slash event search. Entry is free to all four gardens for RHS members. Now, time for your gardening questions. RHS members can put their horticultural queries to our expert team for free by phone, post or email. Each month on this podcast, some of the advisors get together to discuss some of the queries we've recently received. So, what issues have been on gardeners' minds this summer? Here we are at RHS Wisley on a lovely sunny day and with me today in this room are Tony Dickerson, horticultural advisor. Hello. And Matthew Cromie, principal plant pathologist. Hello. Our first question today comes in by email from Jean Kitson and she says, The growing tips in my fuchsia are becoming distorted and discoloured. I cannot find a remedy for this. Can you identify what the problem could be and suggest a remedy, please? Matthew, do you think this could be disease? Um, I don't think it's disease. Probably it's going to be a pest. It's most likely fuchsia gall mite, um, but it's it's hard to be certain without seeing a photograph or a sample. One of the problems with uh, fuchsia gall mite is that it's it's really not easy to control. So there's not really a lot of actions you can take. Really, only only the choices are chopping out some of the infection or grow something else if it gets too bad. So often, growing the right thing in the right place uh, can do go a long way to uh, to managing problems. This is a new pest to the United Kingdom. It appears to have come from South America, where the, the fuchsia plants hail from. And it would seem that an enthusiast brought it to Brittany in France, from, and from there it spread to southern Britain, possibly by someone bringing back cuttings, which was very ill-advised, and it's now spreading gradually throughout Britain. And uh, 
it could mean serious difficulties for fuchsia growers in future. It's been endemic in California for some years, uh, and fuchsia growers there often have to buy fresh stock each year from insect-proof greenhouses. So it's a serious matter. It's not surprising Ms Kitson didn't recognise it. So the next question is from Jamie Wentworth of Hastings, who, who uh, asks, I would like to plant some tulips in the border, but I don't want to lift them every year. Are there any good, sturdy, tall ones that will successfully naturalise and are resistant to tulip diseases? Well, uh, Christopher Lloyd, who was a great tulip aficionado, made the point that he'd grown hundreds of tulips over many years and an awful lot of them never came back to anything like flowering performance the following year. It's often a hit-and-miss situation where you'll try some and they'll grow again. Uh, but a lot of public gardens and so on, it's routine that the bedding tulips after the spring display are dug up and composted simply because unless they're lined out for another few years to grow on, they simply do not come back up to flowering size. And that's, that's the trouble in this country, trying to get them back up to flowering size. The one possibility is something called tulip sprengeri. And again, this is something that Christopher Lloyd grew down at Great Dixter. Uh, it's a pleasant scarlet colored tulip, grow in shade, or in full sun. It'll even naturalise in meadows. It's quite slow, but over a number of years, the bulbs, which are quite expensive to buy, if they like the conditions, will self-seed. And um, that's the one option. The other ones you might consider any of the uh, species or, or rockery tulips, but those simply won't give you the height in a border and more uh, suited to the front of a bed or containers or a rock garden and that sort of situation. Looking for the resistance to diseases, um, one of the difficulties is in a, a, lot of, a lot of plants that people grow, there isn't a lot of information. Uh, different cultivars will differ in, in resistance to disease. We generally don't know. Often if you buy, a, a, buy plants, you can't guarantee that they will be resistant to diseases, even if you're told they might be. Um, but keep an eye on the cultivars you've got. If you have particular problems, if you have uh, a, a worse problem in one cultivar than another, then choose the cultivars that grow well for you. We've actually did a trial here at Wisley of uh, tulips that we thought might naturalise in grass. And I have to say is it didn't, uh, it didn't uh, succeed terribly well. But um, a lot of seed catalogues, uh, bulb catalogues, I should say, offer mixtures of tulips which they believe will naturalise well. I don't have a, a great deal of faith in these, but it, it's certainly possible. The early single tulips are the ones that uh, most commonly succeed. But I have to say that I try every year uh, to get my tulips to multiply and persist. And as yet, I've been unsuccessful. And yet... Um, you go around the country and you find, for inexplicable reasons, patches of tulips that come back year after year. Uh, so it's worth trying, but you've, you mustn't build your hopes up too much. Perhaps if I was giving one example that I've succeeded with, uh, one called Princess Irene, which is a pleasant shade of orange. Uh, but if that doesn't fit into your colour scheme, then I say you could well struggle. Fiona Dawson from Epsom has written in about a severe problem with whitefly. It started last year when her husband grew cucumbers in the greenhouse at the same time as the tomatoes. She put as much stuff outside as she could, um, the species pelagoniums, the gloriosas and other greenhouse plants. But when the cool weather came, they had to put all the uh, plants back in and the whitefly returned as well. What can we do about this, Matthew? Um, it's a tricky one because the whitefly really likes uh, the warm conditions you get in greenhouses, so it tends to hang around. Um, it's an ongoing problem. Uh, there are some chemicals that can be used, but um, they're not necessarily very effective. 
biological control is something that people do often use in greenhouses. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of uh, particular ones that are used there. There's a, a, a tiny parasitic wasp called Encarcia formosa, and that attacks the nymphs, so the, the young stages of the whitefly. So that's something you can buy, you can purchase that, you can put them into a greenhouse, so you can practice the principles of integrated pest management. So trying to do things a slightly greener way that doesn't involve spraying large amount of chemicals. Um, there's also a, a black ladybird that uh, some some people can get hold of it. I don't know how easy it is to get hold of, but that can give quite good control. That won't get rid of it entirely because biocontrols will work on, on when populations are high to bring them down again, but they can keep things in check. Um, and otherwise, generally, good, good cleanliness, uh, trying to... Uh, reduce the uh, amount that they'll survive. They grow very, they, they, they reproduce very quickly. So the difficulty can be that um, that you can go from almost none to a huge number very, very quickly. Um, but just trying to keep the, 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 the greenhouse reasonably clean will help. And perhaps a good idea if you're buying in plants for the greenhouse uh, to perhaps put them into quarantine for two or three weeks, uh, just so you can actually check you're not actually bringing the pest in and at the end of the season a really good clear out of the greenhouse all the debris and material uh, buy a greenhouse sterilant from a garden center or diy superstore um, if you want to avoid using chemicals at all you could try the yellow sticky traps which are quite useful and a diy option is to put double-sided sellotape onto a piece of cardboard waft that over and underneath the plants you'll certainly pick up a lot of them but it could be quite a full-time occupation and, and, and bearing, bearing in mind too that the, the keeping things clean cleaning up the, the greenhouse a lot of the weeds that you might have within a greenhouse they can also harbor it so if you have got the opportunity to completely clean out remove everything that's that's living from a greenhouse clean it up then you're starting from scratch again and ideally you can keep them out for a while at least We've had a lot of success with the parasites here at Wisley. The trick is to make sure there's not too many whitefly to start with, because if there's masses of whitefly, the parasite can't feed on them fast enough to beat the numbers back. So what we do is at three-day intervals, we spray them with an insecticide that has a contact action, usually based on things like soap or vegetable oil. This knocks the adults back enough to reduce the, the numbers. You might have to spray three times over nine days, but that will knock the numbers back. And then when your parasitoids arrive, which you have to order them from po by post, because, of course, they have no shelf life, uh, they've got a sporting chance of keeping the whitefly numbers down. It works very well for us here at Wisley. Right. Our next inquiry is from uh, Mrs. D. Uh, Ballis. She was recently given two box balls in pots. Unfortunately, they've quickly started to look quite sickly, brown on the tips of the leaves, and a little sparse in the centre. Um, she asks if this could be sun damage, or might it be the dreaded box blight? She's unsure of the signs. Well, Matthew, what do you think? Again, it's difficult to be certain about something just from a description, but looking at the, 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 what is described, so they're going brown on the tips of the leaves. So that doesn't suggest box blight particularly to me. It does suggest something more environmental. Uh, the box balls are in pots, so they could well be dry. 
they could get too dry, so that could be an environmental issue there. Nutrition's a possibility, uh, depends on, on how, how well they've been, they've been looked after. They come in recently, um, so they change of environment. Um, there has been quite a lot of frost damage on, on box. Uh, it doesn't sound like it from the description, but again, environment, change of situation, possibly they're not in the best situation for them at this stage. So probably not box blight, but it's still worth having a think about it. So with box blight, look for the leaves actually dropping. Look for little brown lesions, brown spreading spots on the leaves prior to them, them dropping. Look for black streaks on the stems. And generally, if it's box blight, it'll be worse than patches. So you'll see patches that are badly affected rather than the whole thing going off. Um, so look at those, and uh, that should help clear up the cause of the problem. So our next question is from Jay Lacey, who says, Our daughter is planning to move home in February-March next year from the Midlands to the West Country. She wants to take her climbing rose wedding day with her. When is the best time to lift it and put it in a pot for the journey? And can she move other roses at the same time, shrub roses, tea roses, etc.? Well, I must admit, January roses are considered rather difficult to move because they have very prongy roots and not an awful lot of fibrous root there. But I've certainly had members tell me that they've moved house six or seven times and each time they've taken their roses and they've moved very successfully. So it's certainly worth considering. In terms of lifting any rose, I'd be waiting until uh, late autumn, early winter. Uh, the taller ones you're going to have to cut back. When you lift them, the roots, you need just to prune off any damage, pot them up in, I think, probably 10 litre pots. That would be the sort of size with the movable, but uh, enough root space for them. Uh, that would certainly be uh, one option. And I guess the other guy, um, perhaps a little bit easier, perhaps taking cutting material. I mean, what could be done with these roses? Yeah, you're quite right, Tony. Um, it's always well to take a few cuttings as a insurance policy when moving roses october is the ideal time to do it so take cuttings about 10 inches long that's 25 uh, centimeters and place them in a pot of gritty compost say multi-purpose compost um, equal quantities with coarse grit and keep those in a sheltered spot and with luck they'll root the following spring um, if your ro if um, this lady's roses survive the the move as i very much hope they will uh, and the cuttings will be useful reserves and no doubt appreciated by her friends and if it doesn't survive well it's not um, it's, it's not all total loss there is one small problem though she ought to be aware of and that is if she's moving these roses to a, a plot of ground where other roses are being dug out there can be disease implications Matthew. Um, and in particular, a rose replant disease would be an issue. So planting roses in a, in a bed that's already had roses, so say moving out the old roses that they don't want, putting on the ones they brought in, there's the potential for rose replant disease. It's not really a known disease. No one really knows what causes it. It's probably microbial. It's probably a mixture of various things. But the difficulty is if you plant roses in the same place as you had roses before, quite likely they won't thrive, they may well die. Um, if so, if, if they are moving them into an area that had roses, it's best to move the soil around. So replace the soil and plant in, in, a, in a fresh soil that hasn't had roses. Yes, I mean, particularly for something uh, like a rose that was bought for a special occasion, uh, it pays to have a, a bit of a backup plan. And with roses, the, the simplest option is to take hardwood cuttings uh, which you can take in late autumn or early winter. Uh, you're not looking for the oldest wood. When we talk about hardwood cuttings, we're talking about growth of that uh, past summer, which is hardened up, and cuttings perhaps 8 or 10 inches in length. 
uh, cut horizontally at the base of the cutting so you know that's the base and cut a sloping cut above the top bud and those can either be potted up uh, perhaps a 10 or even a dozen in a large pot and um, put in a corner they'll almost naturally root on their own uh, alternatively if you've got some ground somewhere where they can be lined out that's another option but certainly hardwood cuttings of roses are normally pretty reliable push them halfway or three quarters of their way down into the potting compost or ground and you'll be very unlucky if at least half a dozen do not root by the following spring right we, we have a, an email here from penelope prince i heard at chelsea that dahlias are edible and also some types of ferns is this correct and what varieties might be good to try i'd like to surprise my gardening dinner guests well guy i know you're a great grower of all things edible uh, but do dahlias come into that dahlias have a a tuberous root that is rich in carbohydrates and in the spirit of scientific inquiry I have cooked one in the past and ate it and I have to say that it was um, rather watery and rather fibrous but it was nonetheless it was edible and since I've survived I can say with confidence that if you wish to try it for yourself you will come to no harm and you may find it to your taste. As to variety um, it's seldom that varieties are offered for their culinary qualities but a number of seed companies over the last few years have suggested varieties that they think might be good for the table on the other hand i haven't failed in my duty to rhs members in sampling ferns uh, these are often called fiddle neck ferns and they're very popular as a vegetable in north america and in fact in northern france um, and surprisingly they are um, perfectly safe to eat uh, you pick up, you pick off little tender fiddleheads in the spring. Best not to take more than half of them because otherwise you'll um, you'll weaken the plant. And then you can cook those, boil them, microwave them. It's important to cook them thoroughly because some of them can be harmful um, if they're eaten raw. You can even eat bracken, but that one really does have to be cooked well. Uh, other ones, which are particularly good garden plants, are the western sword fern and the lady fern, and very often people want to grow vegetables in shady spots and most vegetables do rather poorly in shady spots but of course ferns do very well so anyone with a shady corner in their vegetable garden you know, might like to think about growing some fiddleheads. Adalia uh, is treated like a potato a boiled roast I actually roast mine in the bonfire here at Wisley when we're burning old sticks so um, it was very very rural indeed um, and the ferns just need to be softened in hot water or microwave um, until they're well cooked uh, i imagine you serve them with some dressing but i've yet to yet to try them fern roots were part of the uh, diet of the maori in new zealand in particular in pre-european days so they're edible but i don't know that they'd be the favorite choice these days i think they've pretty much gone out of fashion yeah i think listeners may also have come across a few other south american um tuberous type plants yakon and ochre um, perhaps worth reflecting that the potato has been with us and grown extensively for the best part of 500 years or more. Um, these other things, interesting and so on. Uh, of them, I think ochre is quite uh, an interesting vegetable, citrus type, potatoey taste. The trouble is, I think you need quite an acreage just to feed uh, a small family. So uh, other than for interest, they're certainly not going to surpass potato, which I think has proved its worth. And these things, I think, are interesting, but um, 
and whether they become staples of our Western diet, I'm very doubtful. Ochre is certainly delicious, and it's best to harvest them after the first frost because they get a lovely red colour. The thing about ochre, and indeed yacon, is that they're day-length sensitive. So in Britain, where the days are very long, they don't set tubers until autumn. So uh, the crop tends to get frosted before much in the way of tuber is formed unless you grow them in the greenhouse. However, uh, research is under, underway to find better ones for the British conditions. So this may change in future years. And I hope it does because I, I like them. I think their, their lemony taste is, is really nice. I'm not sure I'd want to um, forswear potatoes for them, but I always try and have a few plants in my garden. The RHS Gardening Advice Team. Contact details for the team can be found on the advice pages of our website. There you can also find details of how you can become a member of the RHS so you can use our advisory service for free at any time of year. Well, that's almost all we have time for in this edition. We've just got time to hear the next in the series of plant portraits from RHS botanist James Armitage. Each month, he reveals the remarkable stories behind some of the more unusual plants in Wisley's collections. The days of our years are three score years and ten. How much some things change in a lifetime. The world 70 years ago was one still shaken, torn and scarred by the Second World War. Six years of bloodshed and human slaughter on a scale unknown before or since. The decades that lay ahead would witness rock and roll, pop art, Space travel, the summer of love, Reaganomics, new labour and Facebook. Things that couldn't be guessed up by the citizens of 1947. A year when the UK was brought to a standstill by the worst snowfall of the century. When the Roswell incident launched a thousand conspiracy theories. When Tor Heyerdahl's raft, the Contiki, completed its 4,000 mile across the Pacific. When the future Queen Elizabeth II married Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark. And when... Somewhere in England, a tiny plant of Hippophy sinensis, Chinese seed buckthorn, broke the boundaries of its seed case and for the first time reached its leaves to the sun. The little seedling was a long way from home. The parent that had given rise to it grew far away on the eaves of the world in Tibet. The journey that led to its germination and subsequent life in the UK begins with a meeting in 1929 in Kashgar, Chinese Turkestan, a meeting which was to result in one of the greatest partnerships in the history of botanical exploration. The names Ludlow and Sheriff loom large in the lore of plant hunters. Their expeditions to the eastern Himalaya were the first surveys of the plant life of the region. George Sheriff was born in Labert, near Falkirk, in 1898. He attended the Royal Military Academy in Woolwich and fought in the First World War, being badly affected by gassing in France. He survived and saw action in India in 1919 before securing a post as British Vice Consul in Kashgar, where he encountered Frank Ludlow, a Cambridge-educated teacher, 13 years his senior, who is staying with the Consul General. With their shared love of plants and exploration, the two men quickly struck up a friendship and embarked upon a series of plant-collecting trips, starting with a journey to Bhutan in 1933. They made further expeditions in 1936 and 1938 and recommenced their activities after the Second World War with a two-year campaign to southeast Tibet, beginning in 1946. They were joined for part of this time by Colonel Henry Elliott of the Indian Medical Service and on 15th September 1947 the three made a collection of seed of what they thought was Hippophy rhamnoides subspecies yonanensis from a plant 10 to 12 feet high growing on dry ground on Shogutzong at a height of 10,500 feet. They dutifully recorded the find in their catalogue under the collection number LSE 15724. Sheriff and Ludlow were to make one further trip together in 1949 
but by this time Sheriff's health was failing and both men returned to the UK the following year. Sheriff passed his remaining years creating an extraordinary Himalayan garden at the farm near Kerrymuir, Angus, where he settled. He was awarded the OBE and the RHS Victoria Medal of Honour and died in 1967. Ludlow spent his latter life working on the specimens held at the British Museum of the collections he and Sheriff had made. He passed away in 1972, aged 86. The buckthorn seed they collected apparently germinated in the same year as it was harvested because records show it was received at Wisley as a living plant on the 3rd of January 1948. In the mild climate of Surrey it has grown into a mighty specimen, far outstripping its parent in size with massive writhing limbs and a splendid canopy of silvery leaves. In January 1998, 50 years after its arrival, it was re-identified as Hippophy sinensis, but the discreet appearance on its label of the code LSE15724 forges the connection still with the great explorers of so many years before. For generations of visitors to Wisley, it has been a permanent fixture in its position on the terracing at the head of the conifer lawn, alongside the laboratory building to the east and the curator's house to the south. How little some things change in a lifetime. James Armitage from the RHS Science Team. You can find images and more information from all of James's plant encounters on the RHS website. There you can also hear all of the previous parts of the series. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash Wisley Plant Encounters. Well, that's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight when we return to the incredible International Vegetable Garden at Hyde Hall. It's amazing, don't miss it. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden, and all here at Wisley, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>